We'll be reading today from the prophecy of Haggai. You'll find that in between the two Zeds, near the middle of the Bible, between Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's a short one, and so you can, if you get to the Z's, you'll know it's either front or back of those. I have to sit. So Haggai, verse, uh, page 916 in your few Bibles. <clears throat> in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work in the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. 
declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for this exhortation. We pray that we will be aware that you are with us and that your spirit is among us and, and dwelling within us. Father, we ask that we will be strong for you, that we will proclaim your name in our neighborhoods and the people around us. And Father, I ask that you will, your Holy Spirit will bring the words that Yuri needs to bring your message to this congregation. Thank you, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks very much, Dad, for reading. Let's pray once again. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see wonders out of your law. Open our hearts. Make us tender. Help us to know that apart from you, we are nothing. Fill us by your grace and fill me. That the words of a mere man could carry the message of your spirit. Amen. Jesus challenges us to consider our ways, trusting his word, that is, the apostles and prophets, the New Testament and the Old Testament as we know it, to build and to be the living temple where his spirit moves and works. I've called our study of the book of Haggai, Consider Your Ways, which is a wise word from the book itself. Five times God calls those to whom he sent Haggai to consider, literally to set their hearts on his message calling attention to what's going on around them, calling them to reevaluate their assumptions and the decisions they've taken or put off taking. In the light of his word, prompting them to change course based on that consideration of his word, hearing afresh his commands and his promises. And that's what I would urge as well that we consider our ways, that we set our hearts on them in the light of God's word to better understand our history, our assumptions, and the decisions that we've made or put off making, to see what commitments we need to renew and the opportunities into which God 
may be leading us. Last week, we established that it's important to study the Bible, the whole Bible, every book of the Old as well as the New Testament, not only because it points us to Jesus, although that is the biggest reason, but also because it helps us to perceive the bigger patterns of biblical history. And this long view, a view that sees God working in cycles that last multiple centuries to carry out his purposes until the end, encourages us on our worst days. Since we can see how others have gone through bad times before and God has brought them through. It's a view that humbles us on our best days, reminding us that our successes ultimately have nothing to do with our cleverness, our strength, or even our conviction of the rightness of our cause. No, we are called to faithful, humble obedience. And whatever we count as wins rests on God's mercy, God's will, and God's purposes for us and for the whole world. We learned that the book of Haggai, though it's not well known to many of us, has a lot to teach us, especially right now, because it was written at a time that in many ways echoes our own. So we spent a lot of time talking about context, how, like us, the people God addressed through Haggai were aware of a major break with their past, how, like us, they faced withering opposition, how, like us, though they were basically faithful to God, they were mostly inclined to just go along to get along. Their story was a story of survival. Their city and their culture had been completely destroyed. Those who would have been the community's natural leaders had been carried off to a distant land. Now those exiles had been back home for almost 20 years. But though they were ably led by a prince from the royal line of David, Zerubbabel, and a faithful high priest, Joshua, Though they had initially made good progress, they had abandoned the very project that had brought them back to Jerusalem. They had allowed the temple to remain unfinished. They weren't exactly doing anything wrong, at least nothing obviously sinful. They had been hard at work building houses, raising crops, and caring for their families. But in all those good endeavors, despite their good intentions, success eluded them. This was baffling. After bringing them back to the land as he had promised, why was God now subjecting them to such futility? Well, we left off last week with God's terse diagnosis. He says, in verse 3, sorry, verse 2. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Knowing the end of the story as we do, it seems obvious that that was a serious miscalculation on their part. They had one job to do, 
one task that not only God, but their earthly emperor had commanded them to carry out. They were promised support, they were given ample resources. How could they have failed? Now, contrary to what many assume, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that they were just lazy. It seems even unlikelier that they were greedy, even though many people seize on that phrase, paneled houses, paneled houses, which I think is verse 4. The thing is, the word that we have translated as paneled more literally means covered, which leaves things kind of open. God could have been questioning the fact that they had put a roof over their heads while the temple lay in ruins. Not that they were living in luxury. To us, this may seem unreasonable of God, but it's still probably a more realistic translation given their poverty, given their hunger, given the desperate situation that the rest of the passage insists that they were facing. So it wasn't laziness. And it wasn't that they were living large while they ignored God. The Bible tells us back in Ezra 3 that shortly after they arrived, they set the altar of the temple back in its place. And quite appropriately for their situation, they celebrated one of the main biblical festivals, the Feast of Booths, Booths or Tabernacles, which commemorated their exodus from slavery in Egypt. And not only did they do this, Ezra says that they began to offer all the proper sacrifices, day by day, month by month, morning and evening, year after year. They also got right to work rebuilding the temple's foundation, hiring skilled laborers and ordering the proper building materials from Lebanon, which was famous for its cedar, and which was where King Solomon got the wood for his magnificent temple, the one that now lay in ruins. So, if it wasn't laziness or greed or neglect that kept them from continuing their work, what was it? It was fear. Fear. There was a very real threat of violence if they continued, if they forced the issue. Fear and frustration. This is what Ezra tells us. There was sustained opposition to their work on every side, from Gentiles for sure, but perhaps even also from fellow Jews, the so-called bad figs who had not been selected for the relative comfort and safety of making a new life at the center of a rich empire, but who had served out their time on its fringe in a bleak, burned-out landscape. And finally, Haggai and Ezra both tell us of another very real problem, disappointment. Compared to Solomon's temple, the new plans were modest. It was small, unimpressive. To put it bluntly in our language, the new temple was going to be pretty lame. When you keep coming up against obstacles, even threats on your life, about a project that's not especially exciting, it's not surprising that you start to think that maybe now is not the time to take it on, especially when it's all you can do to keep a roof over your head and food on the table. 
Maybe you even start to wonder if God himself is closing doors and leading you in a different direction. For the people in Haggai's day, very conveniently, there was this prophecy of Jeremiah that they could point to. You can imagine the kind of creative arguments they used to convince themselves about it. Now, Jeremiah said that at least 70 years would pass before the temple would be built. Well, that's not exactly what he said, but still, if you count up the number of years from when the temple was destroyed to when we returned, you're short by a good 20 years. And in any case, if you want to be a stickler about it, he was never completely clear where year zero was, so how can we know if it was time, if it's time to rebuild the temple? Strictly speaking, you know, he didn't really say anything about the temple anyway. Haggai, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So what we have here is not exactly a dispute about faithfulness or incorrect theology, or false worship practices. There's no suggestion that the people were serving other gods. Everyone agreed that you were supposed to offer sacrifices, and they did, lots of them. And they all agreed that, ideally, the priests should do that in a temple. They really were all committed to building the temple. But many of them wanted to wait until conditions were just a little bit better until they could build a proper temple. And that's just it. Our scripture reading today makes clear that it was this question of what makes a proper temple that was the major sticking point. In chapter 2, verse 3, the word from the Lord that came by the hand of Haggai addresses this. This word, the text says, came on the 21st day of the seventh month. That means it was at the very end of that year's Feast of Booths, a Feast of Tabernacles. What's the significance of that? Well, not only were all the people gathered together and thinking about the Exodus, their escape from a previous captivity, it was also the anniversary of the first feast they celebrated after they set the altar back in its place. And it just so happens that it was also the anniversary of the dedication of the original temple, Solomon's temple. So amid the ruins, God actively stirred up memories of the splendor of Solomon's temple, deliberately bringing out the people's disappointment into the open. He encouraged them to admit that the temple they were building was like nothing in their eyes. But yet, in the midst of the reality of their disappointment, and despite the reality of their disappointment, he met them in their disappointment, encouraging each one of them to be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. He called them to continue the work that they had at this point already begun. And he reminded them why they should keep working. He reminded them of the true basis for their hope. Their hope was not based on the fact that they were going to have the most impressive building around. No, their hope was based on the fact that they were the covenant people of the living God. 
Their hope was based on the historical fact that he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and more than that, that he had himself lived among them and provided for them for 40 years in the desert. And not in a fancy building, but in a tent. And he reminded them that temple or no, poverty or no, fear, frustration, disappointment or no, he was still among them. Work, he says in verse 4, for I am with you. Work because the covenant I made with you in the desert still holds. And verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. And then he gave them a new promise. He was going to shake things up, everything. The heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land, all the nations. And this shaking would cause the earth's riches to flow into the temple. He would fill this house with glory through this shaking. Not only this, but their assumptions, their understanding would be shaken up as well. Whatever they might have once thought of the drab appearance of the temple they were building, one day, God said, they would recognize that the glory of God's temple had become greater than anything that came before it. As we consider our ways, it's instructive to consider what people do with promises like these. Some are faithful and obedient, regardless of whether they see the promise fulfilled in their lifetimes. Others get impatient when nothing seems to be happening and use the promise as an excuse to grab glory for themselves. Well, as we read in the text, despite their disappointment, despite not being able to entirely conceive of what Haggai was talking about, the people were obedient. Their fear of man was overcome, the text says, by their fear of God. God stirred up their spirits, it says at the end of the first chapter, and the temple was indeed built over the next six years. Or four years, I should say. Many continued, though, to be dissatisfied with it. And as we read in Malachi, the priesthood itself became corrupt. But despite all that, despite ongoing struggles and hardships, over the next hundred years, these Jews experienced a spiritual renewal of a sort, at least. Despite his seeming distance, God was clearly at work among his people. Under the lasting influence of Ezra, who was to come in a few decades, they increasingly and faithfully relied on the written word of God. It was during this time that what we call the Old Testament scriptures took their familiar shape, and during this time that they were even translated into a new language, Greek, and carried throughout the known world. It was this translation, incidentally, that the apostles knew best, and because it was known everywhere, it eventually facilitated the rapid growth of the spread of the Bible throughout and the spread of 
the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Because despite God's promises through Haggai, the time of the second temple was a time of deepening darkness. Ironically, the man who made the temple famous again was a crafty, violent, and power-hungry ruler who only had a passing interest in God and his promises because they presented him with an opportunity to accomplish his pragmatic political goals. In seeming to fulfill God's promise of a rich and glorious temple, he could appeal to the vanity of his squabbling subjects. He could use their religious fervor to his own advantage. He could give them something impressive to preoccupy them. He could exhaust their ambition in a sacred space that would make their pettiness and jealousy seem like perfectly justifiable zeal. And along the way, he could grab a little glory for himself. Well, Herod the Great's new and improved second temple was undertaken not long before Jesus was born. And it seems that the only person who was not impressed with Herod's pet project was Jesus. In Mark 13, we read about how his disciples were exclaiming, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, it wasn't that Jesus rejected the temple in principle. It wasn't even that he questioned its purpose. This cynicism we hear in his voice wasn't even directed toward the murderer who refashioned it after his own image or the hypocrites whose image it served. It wasn't that Jesus wanted to see it blown up. His quietly deflating comment was an understated lament. Everyone, even his closest friends and disciples were so taken in by the marvels of a world that's doomed to pass away. Now earlier in John 2 verse 19, he had challenged his fellow Jews who demanded a sign of his authority to destroy this temple and that in three days he would raise it up. It was a statement that was so shocking that it was bound to be misinterpreted. And indeed, it was thrown back at him at his trial. John writes that after Jesus was raised from the dead, finally, finally, his disciples understood what he meant. Jesus was saying that he is the temple that we would be destroyed yet raised up after a mere three days. They had gushed over the wonders of a building made by human hands, a building, de building destined to be demolished forever while all along they had missed the temple who would be eternally alive. The temple who had been right next to them all that time. Jesus is the temple. Jesus himself is the embodiment of the true glory that Haggai was talking about. Jesus appearing shook the heavens, shook the earth, shook the sea, shook the dry land, shook all the nations. 
Jesus' glory infinitely eclipsed even the splendor of the temple that Haggai's people conjured up in their memory. Jesus is the desire of the nations. Jesus is the one whose glory prompts every tribe, tongue, and nation to give up their treasure, to give up their very lives to be gathered to his sanctuary. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father, eternally filled with the Holy Spirit, is the true temple. And amazingly, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, in him, in Jesus, we also, we also, referring to a mix of Jews and Gentiles, we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5 says much the same thing, and he takes it even farther. Peter says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, holy and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This New Testament understanding of Haggai takes into account the foundation of both the apostles and the prophets and throws a whole new light on what it means for us to consider our ways. As we seek to apply the book of Haggai, it's easy to take a negative, moralistic tone. Stop procrastinating, stop being lazy, smarten up and get to work. Right? But we have the privilege of being able to look back We have the privilege of understanding that united with Christ, united in Christ, we are the temple of the living God. So how could we possibly say with Haggai's people, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord? And yet, as we consider our ways, we have to admit that by our actions, we do say this. Like them, we are inclined to paper over our fears, our frustrations, our disappointments, our fatigue, our spiritual poverty with pious-sounding language like, I just don't feel that the Lord is calling me to that right now. And many of us, when we consider our ways, must admit that we are experiencing a very real drought on the spiritual level. But instead of feeling ashamed about this, again, remember that Haggai says over and over in many different situations, consider your ways. That is, always, in every moment, set your heart on your ways with a view to how they mesh or don't with God's word. Try to understand what's going on in your life in the light of the scriptures. Challenge your assumptions and evaluate the decisions you've taken or put off taking while tracing the trail of his mercy. Ask if you need to change course, but orient yourself 
using his coordinates. Listen afresh as he whispers his commands and thunders his promises. Search for your place in God's history. Embrace the commitments you may need to renew. Seek the opportunities into which God may be leading you, leading us. So, what follows now is especially a word for the young people in our congregation. A word that I feel the Lord has put on my heart for you this week. And first I want you to know that I and many others in our congregation pray for you regularly. And I want to say that you're an inspiration to me. Every time I have a chance to talk with you, I always feel a lift. And it's because, not because you're nice people, which you are, but it's because you're all so devoted, all so faithful. You all seem to love the Lord. Though I don't know all of you well, I'm so thankful that there's nothing that I can see that makes me worried for you or for your salvation. None of you who are flirting with disaster, with chronic sin or unbelief. So this short word that follows is not prompted by any of you specifically. In fact, it was prompted by two very different encounters with young people who don't actually attend Bethesda. The first was a casual conversation with some very dear young adult friends who told me about a church I hadn't heard of. But they said that they were very impressed with the pastor, so of course I looked into it to satisfy my curiosity. And it has a heavy online presence, so it wasn't hard to find out a lot about it. Now from the standpoint of what they believe, I couldn't find much to quibble with. As far as I could tell, on paper, the leadership is very much aligned with my own theology. The problem was, the more I looked into it, the less the church seemed like what I would actually consider a church. Rather, it's, it's a group of people that gathers in a movie theater on Sunday mornings to watch and sing along as a church in another city performs for them. The pastor over there in a distant city is indeed a very gifted speaker. And the worship experience over there in a far off place is super slick. But I couldn't shake the sense that it seemed to me more like a, a brand with local franchises than a local church. A vision of the living temple, an authentic expression of Christ's body. The other encounter I had was last Wednesday night, as I spoke about at our youth Bible study, when for the first time in many months, I finally met in person with two of the youth who have been coming to our Zoom Bible study regularly. They have been enormously encouraging to me, and seeing each other face to face made us all so happy and filled with joy that it really brought home to me both how grateful I was to have the technology, to continue to connect with them for all these months, but also just how Technology is so utterly unlike a real living person. 
So what's my message to you young people and to everyone? You can listen in if you want. What's my message to you in all this? First of all, I want to apologize to our youth for having gone so long without an in-person youth Bible study. I want to humbly acknowledge my mistake and I've realized that although my rationale was sincere, the decision not to meet in person for long, so long was a mini version of the thing Haggai's people claimed wrongly, that it is not time to rebuild. I honestly thought I was offering the study to the people who wanted it and that they wouldn't have been able to come if it was in person. But be that as it may, I pray that you'll all consider joining us again now that we're back face to face. The second thing I want to say to young people especially is to encourage you, whatever you do, to make sure that you're being built up in a real, live church with real, live people that you can't mute or turn your camera off with. The online movie theater church-ish franchises the youth group party scenes with their electro-worship and wild games that make it hard to get to know anyone, or the virtual church, or even just listening to worship and watching sermons on YouTube. Now, whatever good all these may do you, and I'm not denying that these things may do some people some good, they're just simply not the church. Not what the Bible calls the church, anyway. Not the temple of the living God. How can I say this with such confidence? And what does any of this have to do with Haggai? Remember what we said about the people putting off building the temple because it didn't seem like a proper temple? We tend to do that as well when we insist on things like excellence in the church, which sounds very good. And that online franchise proudly announced that on their website that their team was made up of the best of the best. And certainly we are to give our best to God. But when we insist on excellence in church, when we seek a church that fits us, what we are really doing is elevating our own importance. What we are saying is that being part of a church is not worthwhile unless it seems good enough for us to spend our precious downtime on it. And the flip side of this is that people who are not obviously talented, regardless of how faithful they are, are automatically treated as less important. If you're not in the church off in the distance, even if you attend the one in the local, you are less of a Christian. You are less of the body of Christ. You are not invited into the full life. Of the body. Not only this, but if we believe that the church is made up of, as Paul said again to the Corinthians, not many who are wise, according to worldly standards, not many who are powerful, not many who are of noble birth, if we believe that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the lowly things, and the despised things, as Paul says, then we have to refuse to believe the lie that the church ought to be excellent in the eyes of the world. 
despite the fact that that online franchise's website said that the gospel was reflected in everything they did, the very structure of the organization contradicted that. Well, again, what does this have to do with Haggai? Look again at chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. Chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm reading from ESV now. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Remember how they thought the wood for the temple was supposed to come from, where it was supposed to come from? They supposed that the only proper wood for building the temple had to be imported. Great cedar beams from Lebanon, something they couldn't afford anymore. But God says, just go up into the local hills. Cut down some trees. Any trees will do. In fact, he said, I will take pleasure in it. Why? Because, he says, it is that eagerness to serve him. It is that willingness to make do with whatever he provides that glorifies him. Not whether the building seems like it uses only the best of the best. And that brings me to the final word I have for the whole body, the whole temple of God assembled here in this building. Especially also to those of you who are watching online, who are part of the temple of God. And that is to acknowledge that many of us are tempted to think that because God's temple is spiritual, because every individual, as Paul says, also in 1 Corinthians, is, is a temple of the living God. That physical attendance at a local congregation doesn't make sense. It's no longer important, especially now that we have the technology to participate remotely when we feel like it. Many people question the point of gathering physically anymore. With all these people who annoy us or bore us, or have so many obvious flaws, unlike us. Many people doubt whether they'll get much out of it if they go. And there are also many people who question the value of church buildings as well. And it's true, the church building is not the temple. And I'm not going to get into that debate today. But all of this, of course, misses the point. Misses what God just said through Haggai. Once again, chapter 1, verse 8. Build the house. Why? Not so that you'll feel fulfilled. Not so that you'll be entertained or challenged or inspired. Build the house. Why? That I, the Lord, make ple take pleasure in it. That I, the Lord, may be glorified. Let's pray. O oh Lord, you stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. You stirred up the spirit of Joshua. You stirred up the remnant of the people. To go up into the hills, chop down whatever runty little pieces of firewood they could find, and fashion a little Charlie Brown Christmas tree of a temple 
And you said you would be pleased by that. You said that you would be glorified in it. Lord, accept our pitiful offerings, knowing that the gold of the earth is yours, the silver of the earth is yours, knowing that you have shaken and are shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and you are shaking all nations, and we can look to the time when you will rebuild the heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, we can know that we are already there. We thank you for that fact, that we can come every Sunday morning, regardless of who is here, and know that we are in Zion. We thank you for your goodness to us, and we ask that you would help us to be faithful, to be obedient, we ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, our temple. Amen.